Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Hello and welcome to Educational Renaissance. My name is Jason Barney and I'm looking forward to sharing with you today um, about a blog article in my series, Why the History of Narration Matters. And in this third part of that series, I'll be talking about narration's rebirth during the Renaissance and early modern era. Now, if you've been with me for the first two parts of this series, then you'll remember that one of my big ideas is that the history of narration matters because it will help us in thinking through the relationship between Charlotte Mason educators on the one hand and the classical Christian education movement on the other. There has been at times antagonism or at least disagreement between those two. And um, one of the things that I've been taken by as I delve deeper into the history of narration is the fact that there is this history of narration being used before Charlotte Mason came along and used it. It's actually a mainstay of the classical tradition, particularly in the rhetorical tradition. And so if you look at my second part, the previous article and video to this one on the classical roots of narration, we know that narration was used by rhetorical teachers like first Aelius Theon and the first Progymnosmata book or preliminary exercises book that we have from a rhetorical teacher. He was in Alexandria and he had that as his sort of method of teaching students at the beginning was to have them um, take in a text that was read to them and then write it out themselves, complete a written narration of it. And Quintilian kind of developed this further, but that's that's all there. In this um, lecture, this talk here, I want to share with you about the rebirth in the Renaissance and early modern era through figures like John Locke, Comenius, John Amos Comenius, the great Czech reformer, and before them Erasmus, Desiderius Erasmus, the great theologian, Renaissance humanist um, of the Reformation and Renaissance era. So we've got a lot to look through here today. Before I dive in, I do have to let you know that I feel sadly ignorant about narration in the Middle Ages time. I haven't looked at everything that's out there um, yet to see if I can find narration. Everything that I have looked at, I haven't found any particular exact traces of narration yet. So if you're you know, interested in the research with me, please share with me if you find any um, educational texts that talk about the use of narration in any way, shape, or form in the medieval era. Please share those with me. That'll help complete my understanding of the history of narration. So as we dive in, um, we will note that, you know, as best I can tell right now, there's sort of a dormant era. Narration kind of goes underground during the Middle Ages, and that would make sense given that 
rhetorical training as it was in the classical era had largely changed and shifted by the time we get into the Middle Ages. Political systems aren't working the same way anymore. There aren't as many, you know, governing bodies that a budding, uh, you know, orator might give a speech to. So the nature of training kind of shifts towards more of a grammatical focus as people try and keep up the languages of Latin and Greek as best they can and pass along what they are able to of the kind of riches of, of um, the classical era and all branches of learning. And so there becomes this kind of more scholastic and academic focus that is just keeping up things from before and, and less of a focus on training someone for a public speech, especially in the Western half of the empire. And I'm, I'm referencing George Kennedy, the great classicist from the University of North Carolina and one of the kind of foremost uh, scholars on rhetoric of this last generation here for that kind of general understanding of what happened for rhetoric during this time period. And so we'll move then to the first stage of narrations or rebirth in the Renaissance era as all these texts are coming in, as people are returning to the sources ad fontes and, you know, taking in all that there was from the classical era, kind of finding a new interest in it, it makes sense that we would see narration being kind of reborn and reinterpreted or applied to the new situation of Renaissance education. And so in our first stage, we'll look at Desiderius Erasmus's take on how narration should be used. Desiderius Erasmus lived from 1466 to 1536. I'm indebted to Karen Glass for pointing me to this quotation and the one from Comenius as well. So if you haven't picked up her book, Know and Tell the Art of Narration, I would recommend that to you as a great resource, especially for home educators. But Erasmus is this wonderful Renaissance humanist, and I um, had the opportunity of diving into his work concerning the aim and methods of education to see when he recommends narration, what does it look like? What's the context for him? And I was just struck in reading through the kind of chapter leading up to his recommendation of how like Quintilian really he was. He's encouraging the same sort of attention to detail of the classic texts, these great authors that have come before, and he wants the teacher interpreting them to the students, pointing out grammatical details and helping them get it. And uh, we, he does endorse Latin and Greek, as would be expected at this time, as the kind of main sources of all the important knowledge that was then available. And he's pushing for them to be learned fully so that a, a student can learn to speak and read in, say, Latin as the kind of foundation of their education at the beginning. And so um, he's, he's got exercises for composition in response to the classic text that um, the teacher has chosen. He wants the teacher assigning these exercises in a way that has the student imitating them. 
So even there, we have a sort of connection to a narration-like response, so it's more focused on composition exercises, the more challenging and detailed kind of synthesis of taking what's from the text, but then making it your own more fully, not just narrating. So he says, for instance, that the master or teacher in the course of his reading will be careful to note instances which present themselves as models suitable for imitation. So the idea here is that as the teacher's looking through and finding the right curriculum and getting ready to put it before his students, he's going to find the best passages and then put them forward for students to imitate in composition exercises that they are engaging in. We could see this as a type of narration, even though in many ways it is, it is a more refined kind of form of it that he's already jumped to. He also wants them to be doing similar things to Quintilian. He's, he's actually referenced Quintilian at the beginning of the chapter where he later talks about narration. He says, you know, as regard to the rudiments, learning to talk, knowing the alphabet, I can add nothing to what Quintilian has laid down. So we know that Erasmus is reading Quintilian. We can imagine that he picked out his idea of narration right there from Quintilian. So this is a great example of a rebirth of narration. Uh, he talks about this higher exercise of the students paraphrasing poetry into prose and the reverse process, taking something that's prose and putting it into poetry. Of course, this is a, you know, highly skilled task that he's putting before them. When we were looking at Quintilian, I don't know if you remember from the previous video or article, Quintilian, we thought, was had this as an extension of narration, so that when Quintilian has students paraphrasing poetry, we imagine, because we're in the ancient world, that the teacher has the text, he has the scroll, and he's reading aloud from it, and the students probably don't have that poem. They, I mean, I suppose we could imagine them writing it for themselves. There may have been times and places where it was possible for students to own all the texts, but in the ancient world, texts are costly. That is not necessarily realistic. So my assumption is that what Quintilian has students doing is a, a, a verb, you know, a verbal memory exercise where they are actually hearing the poem out, taking it in, and then trying to write their own paraphrase in prose of the content of that poem as a kind of developed exercise for them. With Erasmus here, I think that it's actually the other way, that students have copies of the text. And one of the reasons I have that as my hypothesis is that we know we have come to the stage where we have a printing press. Uh, about 20 years before Erasmus's birth, the printing press, Gutenberg's press, was invented. And even without that, we would know that text would be much more widely available and cheap in Renaissance-era Europe. You can see kind of the numbers of manuscripts just going up. They uh, have the wealth and ability to have more and more text. So I think that the nature of this exercise where uh, sorry, Erasmus even talks about having students translate a text that they have from Latin into Greek and then back into Latin. 
or from Greek into Latin and vice versa. And I just imagine that's right connected in the same context that, that Erasmus envisions his students having the text in front of them and performing these sort of composition, translation exercise that are honing their rhetorical abilities in the specific kind of writing literate focus that we would expect um, in the day of the Renaissance. So we've got those few details there. Of course, what Erasmus actually says about narration comes after all of this when he recommends that the students narrate not the classic texts that are being read, but the teacher's lecture. Here's how he puts it. Um, the master or teacher must not admit to set as an exercise the reproduction of what he has given to the class. It involves time and trouble to the teacher I know well, but it is essential. A literal reproduction of the matter taught is not, of course, required, but the substance of it presented in the pupil's own way. Personally, I disapprove of the practice of note taking down a lecture just as it is delivered, for this prevents reliance upon memory, which should, as time goes on, need less and less of that external aid which note-taking supplies. Well, we can see a few things here. First, Erasmus says that it's essential that students narrate. Um, they are narrating in a written form, I assume, because he talks about it involving time and trouble to the teacher, which I would imagine means that they are handing in the written narrations that they have produced after the teacher's lecture on the classic text that they were to read and encounter, and therefore the teacher would have the time and trouble of reading them and engaging in some sort of assessment, maybe some feedback. He does point on it, it being the substance. So the focus here for Erasmus is on students getting the content by reprodu reproducing and that that's essential. They are focused on the content of what the teacher has shared to them, assuming it's necessary background knowledge or introduction to a particular classic text that they are reading. Notice how he does cut off any worries we might have about memory not being helpfully cultivated in the students. We might think of Plato's Phaedrus and that dialogue that where you know Socrates talks about this imaginary story with the god Thoth in Egypt and the Pharaoh and how you know the invention of writing is actually going to harm our ability to remember things. Uh, it's an aid to memory writing, but not helpful for training the memory. So Erasmus has this interesting view of note-taking that you shouldn't. This is being done in his day, but he thinks that while the teacher's giving a lecture, students should not be taking notes because that becomes a crutch for their memory. And they should, as time goes on, as they grow older and become more uh, trained as students, they should be able to remember it. Well, how does he ensure that they will remember it? Through narrating after the lecture. So this is an interesting move here for Erasmus. This is our first stage in the rebirth of narration in the Renaissance and early modern era. Our second stage comes with John Amos Comenius. John Amos Comenius was a famous Czech reformer, sometimes called the father of modern education, 
because of just how far-reaching and, and wide his thoughts on education were and how they, you know, in many ways uh, put together the modern school as we know it in its general distinctions. Of course, um, you know, he, he wrote this famous work, the Didactica Magna, or Great Didactic, that endorsed this golden key of education that, for instance, Charlotte Mason and Dorothy Sayers, we might say, looked back to as a central principle. He said that this main object of his didactic, his work on education, would be as follows, to seek and find a method of instruction, so he's focused on pedagogy, how actually to teach, by which teachers may teach less, but learners may learn more, by which schools may be the scene of less noise, aversion, and useless labor, but of more leisure, enjoyment, and solid progress, and through which the Christian community may have less darkness, perplexity, and dissension, but on the other hand, more light, orderliness, peace, and rest. Now, John Amos Comenius here has this kind of golden key of education, and that's teachers teaching less, ironically, but learners learning more. What would do that? It seems we have a, a forerunner here to Charlotte Mason's ideas about how the teachers, or, or Dorothy Sayers, the teachers are doing the work that the students ought to be doing themselves. That the, the teacher's job is really to facilitate the mind-to-mind -mind interaction between the student and the text or the ideas. So I think narration, we would imagine to be connected into that idea. That the narration is, in a way, the key by which teachers teach less, learners learn more. And so we, we can see that here. What we have, what I have right now is just from Karen Glass's The Art of Narration. I haven't yet been able to find the book, The Analytical Didactic, which is a, a book that Comenius wrote somewhat later after his great didactic, where he kind of switches his you know, principle of nature, educating according to nature, to a principle of logic. You can see that analytical thought there, and um, I'm really excited to read some more Comenius. I'm going to be doing so with uh, my good friend and our head of school, Dave Seibel, here at Corbdeo Academy, and, and I also want to look for the, um, I'm going to buy the, the Giants in the History of Education series volume on Comenius, that kind of short introduction that Classical Academic Press has put out. Um, I think there's more probably to find about narration in Comenius, but right now I have this great quote here where he says that every pupil should acquire the habit of acting as a teacher. This will happen if, after the teacher has fully demonstrated and expounded something, the pupil himself is immediately required to give a satisfactory demonstration an exposition of the same thing in the same manner. So with that last part right there, same thing in the same manner, I'm saying this is narration. It's not a, a change or altering into a different format of something that the teacher has given, of the content, the rich content that's given from teacher to student. It is giving it back just as is. So it's a base level narration that Comenius is envisioning here. And uh, he sees it as the student acting as teacher, actually, and I find that really inspiring. It connects with a principle that 
Chris Perrin of Classical Academic Press has called a principle of the classical tradition that is docendo discimus. He says, by teaching, we learn. I, by the way, I wonder where Chris Perrin got that, if there's a place where he um, found that particular Latin phrase or if he made it up to kind of represent something from the tradition. I'll have to ask him next time I have an opportunity. But this idea of the student becoming the teacher, I kind of ironically taking on the role of teacher after taking in something from the teacher, I think clearly embodies for Comenius that principle, that object, that goal that he set out in the Great Didactic of teachers teaching less, students learning more. I, I think it's also interesting that just like Erasmus here, Comenius is not focusing on narrating a text. I wonder if he's dependent on Erasmus or if uh, that's just the spirit of the air that narration would be done not after the reading of a text, but after the lecture, the demonstration or exposition of the teacher. And so that's what we have going on in his perspective here. I think it's also oral narration that's uh, being used here by Comenius. There's no talk of labor to the teacher. There's simply a talk of the, the student becoming the teacher. And therefore, I would imagine them teaching, right, orally narrating in front of the whole class. So we have an interesting kind of set of developments here from stage one to two. Now, our final stage in the rebirth of narration is John Locke, the famous British Enlightenment philosopher. And I think he um, represents maybe a, a completely a little bit different stream where we might see Comenius and Erasmus doing something similar with the narration of the lecture. We have something very different going on with John Locke. But of course, um, I've already talked about how I think that Locke is looking back at Quintilian just like Erasmus was. I'm not sure I can prove that, but his reference to the fables of Esau, for instance, and many other kind of themes from the early chapters of Quintilian make me think it's quite likely that he's drawing from that same passage in Quintilian where he talks about narration. Now, um, for Locke, narration is the solution to a slightly different sort of problem. For him, um, he talks about how rhetoric and logic were being poorly taught in his day. And as he kind of finally gets near, I don't know, three quarters of the way through his some thoughts concerning education, um, to the topic of logic and rhetoric, he sort of apologizes for the fact that he hasn't talked about them. He's talked about many other subjects up to this point, but he gives his defense. He says the reason is because of the little advantage young people receive by them, logic and rhetoric. For I have seldom or never observed anyone to get the skill of reasoning well or speaking handsomely by studying those rules which pretend to teach it. And therefore, I would have a young gentleman take a view of them in the shortest systems that could be found, without dwelling long on the contemplation and study of those formalities. Right reasoning is founded on something else than the predicaments and predicables and does not consist in taking mode and figure itself. And of course, we can hear some of kind of um, Locke's 
critique of the logic of his day, the kind of simple, simple Aristotelian, scholastic, kind of medieval leftovers that are being practiced in his day. And of course, as a philosopher, he had developed his own theories of on understanding, you know, the conduct of the understanding, how it works, how the mind develops ideas and everything like that. Of course, Locke might be just simply kind of categorized or negatively considered as merely, uh, you know, an enlightenment, having this blank slate idea and the problems with that. But I think, like with many philosophers, we misunderstand him and we misunderstand his project if we don't really un get into his world and see some of the real problems with the um, sort of scholastic logical reasonings of his day. I, I don't think that by blank slate Locke is meaning what, what we mean or putting that in the context of kind of a theological reasoning. He's talking about where do ideas come from and the fact that we experience things in the world when we're young children. We don't have already wired into our brains particular ideas of things in the world like chair, but that through our experience of many chairs, we and the hearing of the word and attaching the symbol to this idea, we develop ideas, we form conceptions in our minds. I, I don't think that that is particularly controversial even today or even among uh, Christian thinkers. So, so we've got that there in, you know, the rhetoric and logic as it was taught in his day, I think we're, we're taught as if it was a science, right? There were, you just memorized all these rules and all these names of tropes and types of syllogisms. And Locke is saying, no, we should actually have this Renaissance humanist approach. He talks later about how if you want your son to reason well, let him read Chillingworth, this kind of great Oxford scholar and churchman of his day who was a skillful d debater. Reasoning is going to come by reading some person who has thought well, right? The method of learning reasoning is not just by learning rules. And the same thing with um, speaking well. He wants you to read Marcus Tullius Cicero the famous Roman orator. So he's got this Renaissance humanist to the sources approach. Read the great books, Locke is saying. And if you get your son reading the great books, then he'll be a great thinker and he'll have things to say and be able to say them in ways that are um, proper and stylistic and valuable because of that sort of training. So he wants this kind of imitation and practice, which we can hear from the rhetorical tradition of, um, of even Quintilian. So he's not, he's not departing from the classical education. He's, he's engaging in a little bit of a polemical dialogue about the best way to teach within the classical tradition. And um, he, he really sums it up later when he, he talks about how the gentlemen of his day have been taught rhetoric, but never taught how to express themselves handsomely with their tongues or pens and language they're always to use. They've taught, been taught the figures of speech that embellish the discourses of those who actually knew the art of speaking and the very art and skill of speaking well. This is in all other things of practice is to be learned not by a few or great many rules given, but by exercise and application according to good rules 
or rather patterns to habits are God and their facility of doing it well. Of course, in the early classical era, when you had, you know, young orators in training, they had a lot of practice. They would get in front, up in front of the fellow students and their rhetorical teacher, and they would give a speech and then be critiqued by their teacher publicly in front of all the other students. We hear this clearly referenced by Quintilian and many others. Practice, coached practice with feedback, critical feedback, was how you develop any skill or art. You know, we've missed in many ways, I think, the distinction, the classical distinction between an art and a science and treated the liberal arts as if they were sciences when we really should be training students in the actual activities of the arts, the productive activities of creating something, we get lost instead in teaching them facts or ideas or concepts. Valuable information, to be sure, valuable ideas, but not the skill of speaking. This is Locke's main push. This is why he says that children should be asked to tell a story of anything they know. And then the teacher, parent, the father, potentially, is to, at first, correct the most remarkable fault they're guilty of in their way of putting it together. And when that fault is cured, then to show them the next, and so on, till one after another, at least the gross ones, the bigger faults, are mended. And so Locke here is not focusing on content primarily, and the learning of content with his use of narration. For him, narration is, going back to Quintilian, the way to get the skill and fluency of speaking well. And learning to tell a story well is, for him, the first step, the foundation stone, the bedrock upon which writing and speaking well in a more refined sense will be developed later. And so, it doesn't matter what sort of story the student tells at first. You want to get your child, your young child, telling a story, and then you act as the audience and then the helpful coach as a teacher, parent, tutor, whatever the case may be. And Locke says, you, you don't need to know the whole science of rhetoric. You just know the way they transition between those two plot points was not ideal. Let's see if you can say this instead. You know, let's give them a good transition. Okay, now practice, tell me the story again. And this is the kind of method where you keep doing that and you, you know, mend fault by fault for the student. Of course, he then goes on to talk about how you could use the fables of Aesop next, which he, is, he says is the only good book he knows for children, and then have them write it out in English. So the next stage is writing out. And then you can cure their faults in writing, where you go back and give them feedback. Let's let's have a good transition between those sentences. Let's fix that. You want to give them this exercise of writing English well. And then you can have them translated into Latin or back from Latin into English and vice versa as training them in this skill. You can see some similarities here to what Erasmus was on about with facility of, with the languages. Locke goes on to talk about how important it is that the young English gentlemen learn to actually speak and write well in English with good style. 
And he envisioned, he's seen that be neglected in favor of them learning to write well in Latin, supposedly. And he says he's got nothing against learning Latin and Greek, but he thinks that the most practical skill for an English gentleman is to be able to communicate well in your own language. And that they should get as much Latin and Greek as they can by all means, but you can't neglect learning to speak and write correctly in English and then just focus on all these little details of Latin grammar or even exercises that they had in his day of, you know, taking a Latin poem and, you know, putting it into prose and then back into Latin poetry. And yet this child or student of whatever age can't even tell a good story in front of you, right? I mean, what are they going to do with their life? They need to be able to engage in business and be able to write great letters in English to carry on their affairs or to entertain their friends or communicate well with family. Why not focus on these things as the foundation and let higher attainments in Latin and Greek be the extra or the add-on the, to be to be pursued, but after having attained facility in English. So we've got a few great details there. Again, one of the differences with Locke here is that he's really focused on style. He's focused on the skill. Narration for him isn't a means to learn content better. That presumably would happen as the gentleman is reading a lot of material and interacting with his tutor. But uh, he wants narration to be used for developing fluency in speaking and telling and writing correctly with good style. So he's really gone back to that kind of classical route of rhetorical training, as opposed to the shift to focus on content and on a lecture, for instance, that we have in Comenius and Erasmus. Well, if you're familiar with narration only from Charlotte Mason, I'm sure some of these details have been surprising and hopefully interesting to you about the different ways that narration-like exercises have been used throughout the tradition. In my next um, article and video that I'll do here for you, we're going to look in more detail about exactly what Charlotte Mason did propose and how it compares with the classical roots that we've looked at and the rebirth of education. We'll try and draw some really helpful and practical um, details about what we should do as modern 21st century educators. Given this history, how does that maybe help us look as classical educators at Charlotte Mason's practice of narration and have more kind of thought and reasoning about why we're going to do what we do in terms of the use of narration at any particular point along the way. And uh, also we'll step back philosophically again to think about this kind of disjunction between classical Christian education and Charlotte Mason education and how, you know, these thoughts, this history can help um, give some important advice and and critique to both sides of the camp so that we can in some ways come together and and become together a part of this broader educational renaissance as we seek to take from the ancient world the ancient wisdom out there about education and fuse that with what we know from the modern era about retrieval practice and learning the mind elite performance skill development all of these things that 
we're learning and, and create a holistic fusion from a cre uh, Christian worldview. So I look forward to that final article on Charlotte Mason and uh, the future of the history of narration for us all today. Thanks and I hope you have a great day. I hope you found something practical, exciting, helpful that you can use as you apply narration in your classroom.